Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings 6. The version that I'm going to be using today is the uh, Common English Bible. So if you need to pull that up on your phones, you can. Um, I just don't want anyone to be uh, lost as we're doing it. Okay, well, uh, what we're, our series is Kings. We're, we're wrapping it up today. Uh, Kings, uh, a manual for dissidence. Um, as our culture continues to become more and more anti-Christic, we're looking for ways in which to uh, address that. And we've seen a lot of tough stuff over the last um, seven weeks. Today, we're going to see how it is that victory can still happen, even in an environment that is uh, anti-Christic. And so to do that, we're going to take a look at uh, 2 Kings 6. And um, we're going to start reading. So the king king sent horses and chariots there with a strong army. I just want to set the stage. So uh, the king of Aram... Uh, which is a country to the north of Israel, has been attacking Israel. Um, he's been sending raiding parties to come and, and plunder the people of Israel. But it hasn't been working because Elisha the prophet um, has been, fig- he's been like listening in on what the king's plans are uh, using God's, God's power. He's been kind of, uh, the, the, they say even the privacy of his, of the king's bedroom has been violated because Elisha's there listening. And then Elisha takes that, takes the information, gives it to the king of Israel, uh, whose capital is Samaria right now. And then that, the king uses that to avoid the traps. Okay. Um, I have a picture here of Alan Turing. Um, he was the, uh, he's the guy from, uh, the World War II who, he was a mathematician, computer scientist, and he broke the Enigma code, uh, that the Nazis were using to communicate. He broke it as early as 1940. And it's actually fascinating. The entire, pretty much the entire time in World War II, the Allied forces knew exactly what the Nazis were saying to each other. With some, I mean, some caveats. And as a result, uh, it was very important for, um, the allies to make sure that the Nazis didn't figure out they'd crack the code. And so as a result, there were times when Churchill and others would allow the allied forces to, to lose, to be attacked, to be hit without knowing that it was coming uh, because they wanted to make sure that the integrity of the code was kept safe. Elisha does no such thing. Elisha just tells the king everything that's happening. And so very quickly, uh, the king of Aram's forces, his, his advisors, they realize what's going on. And so they tell him, we have got to find Elisha. We have to stop this guy and shut him up or we're never, never going to win. So the king's like, all right, go do that. And uh, they find out that uh, Elisha is living in Dothan, which is about 10 miles northeast of the capital Samaria. So Elisha has been, you know, listening in to what the king of Aram, Aram is doing, sending that to the king uh, in Samaria, 10 miles away, either by himself or by messenger. And as a result, uh, they're able to, to sabotage all the attacks. And so the king finds out he sends a whole army horses and chariots, a strong army, and they surround Elisha and his servant, just the, just them, in this little town of Dothan. And this is what happens. Elisha's servant got up early and went out. He saw an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. His servant said, Elisha, oh no, master, what will we do? Don't worry, Elisha said, because there are more of us than there are of them. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Then Yahweh opened the servant's eyes and he saw that the mountain was full of fiery horses and chariots surrounding Elisha. 
It's hard for us uh, to believe. Hard for Elisha's servant to believe. In fact, Yahweh, God, has to give a special opening of the eyes so he can see what's really going on. And when he looks around, he sees that the entire mountainside is covered with the angel armies of God. With fiery horses and chariots ready to charge down and break and destroy the Aramean ranks. I have a little video clip I'd like you to watch um, because I think it helps illustrate um, what we're supposed to take from this. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the ball. Fourteen? The correct answer is sixteen passes. I missed it. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. Anybody here miss the gorilla? If you knew about the gorilla, you probably saw it. But did you notice the curtain changing color or the player on the black team leaving the game? Let's rewind and watch it again. Here comes the gorilla, and there goes a player, and the curtain is changing from red to gold. (laughs) When you're looking for a gorilla, you often miss other unexpected events. You can stop it there, Marilyn. Thank you. And that's the monkey business illusion. It's a... One of the things that we've found over the years, especially um, with continued advances in the neurosciences and also the social sciences, we have found that human attention is um, very easily manipulated. Extremely easily manipulated. Uh, To the point that, as in this video, some of us just completely missed the fact there was a gorilla. And then almost all of us probably... Did anyone notice the changing color of the curtain and then the, the player leaving? Oh, Raja, she's observant. Shannon, observant. Okay, so we have some some observant women here. The rest of us were lost. We completely missed the whole thing. Um, In an anti-Christic culture, because the people in charge, the people in power, understand that human uh, attention can be manipulated, they do their best to do that. They want to make sure that we are not focused on what's really going on. They want us to be focused on, you know, this. It's usually really bad stuff. It's usually uh, stuff that makes us outraged or, or, or discouraged. And, and they want us to constantly be focusing on that because if we do, then we are going to miss what's actually going on in the background. We're going to miss the gorilla. We're going to miss the color change. We're going to miss the fact that there is a, a massive multitude of angel armies behind us at all times. No matter what the culture throws at us, it cannot possibly be defeated by God's power should God wish it. Like there's nothing that there's nothing that the culture can do to us that God can't just be like, 
And yet, we get so caught up because we're, we're constantly being bombarded by images and stories and, and, and questions and concerns of, that the, the culture keeps pushing on us, especially in the age of mass media and mass social media. The more and more we are connected to screens, the more and more we are connected to the, the message, the narratives that are going on, the less and less we have time to recognize, to spot, to notice the gorilla in the room. And the gorilla in the room is that Yahweh, God of angel armies, has made it so that there's more of us than there are of them. No matter how overwhelming or big or powerful it seems like the world is, there's more of us than there are of them. That's the first thing on your note sheets. The enemy wants us so focused on what's around us, we miss what's really going on. What's really going on is that God is in control. God has the power. God's not going to lose. God is going to do what God's going to do. And there's nothing the world can do about it. And yet, and yet, we get so caught up in what's happening in our lives, our families, in, 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 in the, the country, in our culture, in our, in our situation, our city. We get so caught up by it, we miss the fact that there's more of us than there are of them. And that brings up a couple of questions. The, the, first, the first of which is, what distracts you from what God is actually up to? Okay, I confess that I'm a news junkie. I love the news. And the news is terrible for me because the news is designed to make me upset. The news is designed to titillate me. They're not really interested in me finding out what's going on in the world. They're interested in me clicking. And so they're going to show me things that are going to make me mad or excited or something that elicit an emotion, a response. And as a result, if I get too caught up in, in this website or that website, I start to forget that there's more of us than there are of them. And the second thing, the second question to ask yourself, what things deceive you into believing that disaster is unavoidable? Where, where, again, our, our culture is, is addicted to outrage. And part of that is ginning up fear that everything's going to fall apart. But the truth is, even if it did fall apart, there's still more of us than there are of them. And what is it that attracts our eye that gets us caught up so we don't see that fact? We don't see that reality. Well, so, so God, so the, the servant's eyes are opened up wide. And he's like, oh my gosh, our army is huge. We are going to clean up. We are going to rout the Aramaeans. There's nothing they can do to stop us. But that's not what happens. Going back to the text. The Arameans came toward him. They've, they've seen Elisha. They're supposed to kill him. And Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this nation with blindness. And Yahweh struck them blind, just as Elisha asked. Just uh, for reference, blindness is probably not the, the, the correct meaning of, of that uh, word. It's, it's only used two times in the Old Testament, here and then in Genesis. It's not the normal word for blindness. And so scholars were confused by what it meant. But we have access now to an Aramaic translation of this text from the, uh, the, the early, like, 1-200 BC. And it uses uh, the word um, sanware, which is the Hebrew, which is the Aramaic word for, um, for bedazzlement, like confusion, enchantment. 
So it, it's sort of like if, if a, a huge like firework blew up right in front of your eyes and you started seeing sparks and you're disoriented and you weren't able to, you, you, yeah, and you'd be easily manipulated in that, in that state. And that's probably what's going on here, and this especially because, as we read on, Elisha said to them, this isn't the right road or the right city. Follow me. I'll lead you to the man you are looking for. I'm going to lead you to Elisha so you can kill him. But he took them to Samaria instead, the capital of Israel. It takes them right into the, 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 the heart of their enemy. Now, if they were actually blind, that would probably be very difficult for them to hike the 10 miles from Dothan to uh, Samaria. So it's more, much more likely that they're enchanted. They're bedazzled. They're confused. They're disoriented. When they arrive in Samaria, Samaria Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Now they're going to get to see what's actually going on. And look, they're right in the middle of their enemy king's stronghold. In... Uh, Aaron and I got married in 2009. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, that was uh, 14 years ago. Two for two. On April 17th. Three for three. Um, two weeks before we got married, uh, Aaron was, was fired from her job. Yeah. Uh, she was like, if you recall, those of you who are super young, you don't remember, but 2008, 2009 was a very tumultuous time for the country. The economy had crashed, uh, for various reasons, and everyone was kind of battening down the hatches and trying to figure out, um, how to, how to operate. And you may not know this, but Erin at the time was a teacher at Stony Brook Christian School. She was, uh, she started out as an elementary school teacher at, at a kindergarten, and then maybe second grade, third grade, first grade. Third grade. Okay. Three for four ain't bad. Um, yes. And uh, we're just about to get married. At the time, like for money, I'm basically like tutoring math. Okay. So not, not, I'm not super financially stable. So we were really kind of depending on that paycheck. Um, and at the time, we had some very strong negative feelings towards Stony Brook Christian School. My, my alma mater, uh, grad class of 95. Um, because like, it was like, oh, it'd be really two weeks before, we were already charged up emotionally. Like, we're getting married. Everyone freaking out. And then now it's like, oh, we're poor. We have, we have no, no financial means. I'm getting ready to be a student, more student stuff for me. So, you know, I'm not going to be making very much money. What are we going to do? Well, uh, Erin, because she's a self-starter, she decided that she would get another job and that was, I mean, she was like a hostess at a high-end restaurant. While she was doing that, she was going to uh, go back to school, get her master's in um, special education, mod severe special education. She ended up having a specialty with autism. If you don't know, she's been highly respected in the school districts. If you have a child who has an IEP and you're looking for some free advocacy, uh, she's very bored, has nothing to do, and she would like nothing more than to help you out and get you what uh, you should have from the school. Typically, they get paid 150 an hour, so if you have it. But if not, it's okay. It's gratis. We're not. This is a family here. Um, she has this incredible career, and uh, and then, you know, she stayed home for a couple of years, and then 
Um, I don't know if you've noticed that inflation is horrible, and so we're our, our bank account, our savings is, is almost at zero now, and so we were like, ah, we need to figure out something, and so Aaron was uh, dropping off the kids at school, and Catherine O'Brien, who's one of the um, the leaders at Stony Brook, walked up to her and was like, hey, why don't you teach kindergarten next year? You have an opportunity to do the things that you love, taking the kids to school, bringing them home. You get to get back into the classroom where you first started, you know, 20 years ago. You get to be at the school that, yeah, it hurt for a while, but man, we love that place. And we were, she took the job, so she's going to do that next year. Um, we're rich. You, you would, you would be shocked at how much they pay over there at Stony Brook Christian School. Thank you, Lloyd. Good work. Um, <laughs> um, we were, we were, we were remarking, we were sitting there thinking, and we were like, we just kind of bedazzled by the way that God saved in this. Because it was, it was completely ridiculous. Like, if you had asked us 14 years ago, if ever we would even have a relationship with somebody, we'd be like, nope, they're backstabbers. And then over the course of the years, we, we fell back in love with the school. Our, our children go there and have had an amazing experience. And, and then now for her, for Aaron to come full circle and end up back where she, it's like, what? That is not how we saw this going. Similarly, like, the servant's like, Elisha, great news. We've got this huge army of angels who are invincible. We're going to wipe these suckers out. And Elisha's like, mm, no. You see, you operate on kind of like a human way of thinking, but you don't understand how God operates. God operates in a way that is surprising and shocking. God loves to dazzle us with surprising ways of saving. That's the next thing in your note sheets. God loves to dazzle us by saving us in the most unexpected ways. This is one of the things that makes uh, Yahweh so compelling as a true deity because he's not predictable. You can never see where God's going with something. When things look the worst, they often turn around in fascinating ways to become the best. There's no other religion in the world that pictures God in this way. But that brings up some questions, right? Uh, the, first, the first one, do you remember a time that God surprised you? If you haven't been surprised by God in a while, you might be either you know, not paying attention, your eyes are shut, or you might just be kind of wandering away. You're not engaged with a God who acts like this. And number two, if God is really in control and loves to save in surprising ways, there are probably places in our life where we need to let go a little bit. We need to trust that this is who God is. This is how he operates. We need to believe that even though he's got an, ar- an angel army, he's happy to dazzle uh, people and send them right into the heart of the enemy. They, that, that's the kind of God he is. And as a result, we don't have to be afraid so much. We can trust that even when it looks bad, God's got something up his sleeve. So now, finally, we get to execute all the Arameans. They're right in the middle of the city. They look up, they're like, uh-oh, we're in the wrong place. And uh, the king of Israel is now going to get to, you know, his pound of flesh, right? Well, here we go. Back to the text. When, when he saw them, Israel's king said to Elisha, should I kill them? My father, should I? 
Elijah's like, no, don't kill them. Did, did you capture them with your own sword or bow? Do you have the right to kill them? Put food and water in front of them so they can eat and drink and return to their master. Well, the king of, of Israel goes a, a step further. He gives them a great feast. They ate and drank. Then he lets them go. Let's them go. And they return to their master. After that, the Arameans stopped raiding Israel. Again, it's just this, this bizarre turn of events where any, any rational, the king, he's a, he's a rational guy. He's not, he's not super faithful, this guy. He's not as bad as some of the other ones, but he's still not great. And he's like, yes, I finally have it. I know what to do. I'm going to execute these guys, and then we're going to be able to rout Arama- Aram. This is awesome. And Elijah's like, are you not listening? Do you not know the God you serve? For those of you who uh, wonder whether or not the God of the Old Testament and the God, the Father of Jesus Christ, are the same God, this is an example, and there are many, where uh, God chooses mercy over judgment. Sometimes God judges, but, but sometimes God, uh, through the prophet or through someone else, says, no, 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 love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you. Uh, a lot of you were, a lot of you have been criticizing me for having a shtick where I just talk about movies in place of any, like, you know, substantive examples. Well, I want you to know that intentionally, I have not, well, I mentioned it, but we didn't talk about a movie. I have not used a movie as an illustration in over two months. So I I am not just a one-trick pony, and for those of you who think that, do better. Um, However, we have to, we have to go back to one of the most spiritually profound um, movies and, and, and books of the 20th century that is the Lord of the Rings today. I'm sorry. And uh, Caden's like, Caden tells me, because Caden doesn't like anything. Caden doesn't watch movies. He's our new youth pastor. He doesn't watch movies, so he's like, I'm just lost when you talk about that stuff. I'm like, Caden, get it together, man. It's the 21st century. Like, watch a movie. Like, I, I, do, come on. Well, Caden, since you've probably never read Lord of the Rings... Or watch the movies. I want to let you know what's going on. Uh, the, the point of the, the story is that there's this ring of power. Okay? And this ring of power um, corrupts and, and damages whoever has it. And so um, Frodo the Hobbit. Frodo's a little, little short person called the Hobbit. He, he gets the ring from his uncle Bilbo. Who got the ring from an evil, slimy, nasty guy named Gollum. And the, the, the overarching plot of this epic series is how is Frodo going to get rid of the ring? How is he going to destroy it? We're going to pick up the plot at a point where he's got some allies, and they're headed um, to destroy the ring, but they get lost in these dark tunnels. And Frodo is going to notice something very scary. He's going to notice Gollum, the very person, who the murderer, the thief, the 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 nasty guy who, who had the ring to begin with. And he's going to ask uh, Gandalf, the, the wizard, for some advice. And so uh, we're probably going to—we might even need to turn on the lights because this is sort of a dark clip. But volume up, lights down if we can. And let's uh, take a look at what Gandalf says. Are we lost? I think we are. Shh.
following us for three days. He escaped the dungeons of Baradur. Escaped. Or was set loose. And now the ring has drawn him here. He will never be rid of his need for it. He hates and loves the ring. As he hates and loves himself. Smeagol's life is a sad story. Yes, Smeagol, he was once called. Before the ring found him. Before it drove him mad. It's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that lived deserved death. And some that died deserved life. Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise can assume ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet, for good or ill. Before this is over, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of me. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Antichristic culture, um, we're going to be tempted at times when we open our eyes and we see that the God of angel armies has us outnumbering them. There are more of us than there, there are of them. And we're going to be tempted. We're going to be tempted to, 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 lash, to, to fight back, to lash out, to kill. We're going to be tempted to get involved heavily in the culture wars and, and do this and that and, 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 and spew hate and, and but there's this profound moment where Elisha looks at the king and he's like try mercy mercy only works when someone is bad and they know it but isn't it crazy what happens when mercy is applied and God's in it. And there's this radical change. In the, the clip, if you know the story, you, you remember that, that because Bilbo didn't kill Gollum, at the very end of, of Frodo's journey, when he's completely given up hope of being able to destroy the ring because it's corrupted his mind, Gollum shows up and bites the ring off of his finger and falls into the, the pits of Mount Doom and destroys it. And what Gandalf is getting at is he's saying, mercy 
is a power that we don't understand. We can't see all the ends. Even the wisest person can't see how it's all going to pan out. But sometimes mercy has this incredible power to redeem. And it plays out for the Israelites. They, they, they give a feast for their sworn enemies, the ones who've been killing them. And those guys, they go back and, and they're like, boss, we can't, we can't kill these people anymore. Not after they did that for us. The last thing in your note sheet, God sometimes deals in judgment, but he usually asks us to deal in mercy. Remember, it's God's mercy that gives us Jesus. It's God's mercy where God says, man, you deserve nothing but condemnation, and yet I am going to show you unconditional, relentless love. And as Jesus is walking um, through his life and ministry, he's constantly telling his followers, mercy, love, see what happens. And that brings up a couple of questions for us as we get ready to close. Have you ever seen mercy work to redeem? I, uh, there was a time in my life where I was a very angry person. Um, very vengeful. Um, I thought that And my parents and my wife told me I was wrong, but they didn't condemn me, and they loved me through it. And in conjunction with some other things that happened in my life, I got struck down, I got humbled, and it was mercy that did it. And I'm not a great person, (laughs) but I'm better. The last question. Who deserves no mercy from you but could really use it? What army of a ram has invaded your life who deserves nothing but scorn, hate? And is it your place? Is it time to give mercy instead? Remember, there's more of us than there are of them. So we can't lose. But what if winning looks like mercy and redemption? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, We thank you for the mercy that you've shown us in Jesus. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God, we thank you that you you save in such miraculous, unexpected ways. We, We ask for more of that, God. We ask for more rescue, more hope 
in ways that we don't understand, we can't predict. And God, we pray that we'll have eyes open to see it, to recognize it. That we won't be distracted by the enemy's propaganda, the enemy's flashing arms. Instead, we'll see the truth. There's more of us than there are of them. That in the end, you win. That you use love, you use mercy to bring about redemption. And that we get to be a part of that. God, prick our hearts. Prick our hearts to show mercy. Jesus, you showed us mercy first. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.